John 3, 1 to 8, very famous passage, the story of Nicodemus. The title of my sermon is The New Birth. Here's the big idea. Get this snake wrapped around my head. Man. Only those who are born again will enter the kingdom of God. Only those who are born again will enter the kingdom of God. Do you wish to enter the kingdom of God? Then you must be what? Born again, or born from above, or verse 5, born of water and the Spirit. Jesus is not saying something new there. He's expounding upon what he has previously said, and I'll explain. Anybody familiar with Chuck Colson? If you've been a part of prison fellowship, or Angel Tree Ministry. I've been involved in both. These are ministries that were started by the late Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson has gone to be with the Lord, right? I thought so. Okay, thank you. He's still alive, Chris. Well, he's alive in glory. I found this in a book about Chuck Colson. This will be a little biographical, so if you've not heard about Chuck, uh, here's Chuck in a nutshell. At one point, Chuck Colson... <laughs> What a way to start. At one point, Chuck Colson was one of the most hated men in America. Well, gee, Chris, you're, you're having your opening illustration about one of the most hated men in America. Well, yeah, he, at one point he was, but something happened. He was part of the Nixon White House and was sent to prison for his role in the Watergate scandal. When he got out of prison, he wrote a book. He's written several books, but when he got out of prison, he wrote a book called Born Again. In the book, he claimed to have had his life radically transformed by Jesus Christ. And people were skeptical. Come on, this is Chuck. He's, he's been in prison. He was involved in Watergate. Come on. This can't be true. But eventually, their skepticism faded as they watched Mr. Colson devote his life to preaching the Bible in prisons around the world. Isn't that incredible? Why would he do that? Why would he devote his life to preaching the Bible in prison of all places? The place that he was most hungry to leave, I'm sure. Because he'd been born again. He'd had his life radically transformed. <clears throat> Last week, we talked about Jesus' diagnosis. He diagnoses humanity. We looked at three simple verses in John chapter 2, 23 to 25. What was Jesus' diagnosis, by the way? We lack faith by nature because we are by nature sinners. That's a big problem, right? We lack faith by nature because we are by nature, all of us, sinners. And we can do nothing. Everybody say nothing. Good. We can do nothing to save ourselves because we are, all of us, born spiritually dead. What do we need? We need a new birth. And what does this new birth do? It transforms. Amen? It transforms. So <clears throat> let's begin by setting the scene and then recalling the context from last week. Nicodemus, Nick for short, is a Pharisee, which I'll define here shortly what that means. He comes to Jesus by night. Isn't that interesting? Does it come during the daytime when people were around and about? He comes at night incognito. We'll talk about that. Well, how does Nicodemus address Jesus? Verse 2, Rabbi, Rabbi, teacher, we know. We know that you're a teacher. Come from God. 
Whoa, that's an honorific title if I ever heard one. A teacher come from God? For no one can do these signs that you do unless what? Unless God is with him. Rabbi, teacher from God, God is with you? It would appear that Nicodemus knows who Jesus is, and he makes his address based on the signs or miracles of Jesus. But recall the context. This is important. Recall last week. In our previous passage, what did we learn about Jesus? This is John 2, 23 and 24. Now, when he was in Jerusalem, Jesus, at the Passover feast, many, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Just like Nicodemus referenced Jesus' signs, many saw the signs, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. All right, as we're going to see shortly in our passage, Nicodemus falls into the category of those whom Jesus does not entrust himself to. He sees Nicodemus' trust as untrustworthy. And this is brought to light in next week's passage, but I'll read this portion now, John 3, 10 to 12. Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Obviously, Jesus sees that Nicodemus lacks spiritual understanding. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, so what does he lack? Faith. How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? There's the diagnosis. It's interesting that Nicodemus comes at night. Some might wish to ask, Nick, what are you playing at, bro? Why are you coming at night? I know why it's coming at night. Do you know why? The mention, <clears throat> the mention that he came at night is most likely to be understood negatively. Most would agree, most would agree that Nicodemus coming at night was an attempt to avoid the public eye and remain covert, right? Like a spy. He doesn't want others to know what he's doing. He's trying to find out who this Jesus really is. <clears throat> I hope that's the last time I do that. I'm sorry. It's likely that John wants us... Yeah, that feels better. It's likely that John wants us to see Nicodemus as belonging to the darkness, lost and in need of new birth. In fact, this is affirmed by Jesus' words about the kingdom of God and Nicodemus' need to both see and enter God's kingdom. At this point, we can assume that Nicodemus is an outsider to the kingdom. What is he? He's an outsider. Now, I like Nicodemus, and actually we're going to come back to him at the end of the Gospel of John in the year 2028. I'm just kidding. Uh, It won't be that long. (laughs) But we will come back. We'll we'll look at Nicodemus again. But I want to notice, I want us to look at a few more things. Can we look at a few more things regarding Nicodemus before moving on? Thank you. Okay. First, Nicodemus is identified as a man of the Pharisees, a ruler of the Jews. Now, this is important. The Pharisees were strict interpreters of the law who controlled the teaching that was happening in the synagogues. They were Jewish teachers who were committed to obeying every 
command, okay? Every single command. They even established an oral tradition regarding how the law was to be understood and applied. They wanted to do everything necessary to prevent violating God's law. Now, given what we know about the Pharisees, right, they they really do care about the law and its observance, we can assume that Nicodemus was there, probably sent on behalf of others to scrutinize Jesus, to make sure he wasn't teaching anything contrary to the law. And not only was Nicodemus a Pharisee, a teacher of the law, but a member of the Sanhedrin. Now, this is a big deal, okay? This was the the governing body of the nation of Israel, and it consisted of 70 men, only 70 men, and it's likely that Nick is one of those 70. So he's in a position of power and authority. He's an important figure, but let's not forget who he's coming to. Who's he addressing? I mean, he can come with pomp. He can come with his pedigree, right? I'm a Pharisee. I'm part of the Sanhedrin, but this is the creator of heaven and earth. Let's not forget that. You think Jesus is impressed? No. So Nicodemus comes with flattery, assigning Jesus with these honorific titles. And this was common in this time, in this culture. When you were about to engage with an opponent, you would kind of heap on these honorific titles. Rabbi, teacher, come from God. We know that you couldn't do these things unless God were with you. And this is where Jesus takes over revealing both Nicodemus's spiritual state and ours and the solution to his problem and ours. You see, all of us can relate to Nicodemus. If you look at this story, the, the two main players are Jesus and Nicodemus. Who are we most like? Who do we resemble? Not Jesus by nature, but Nicodemus. If you said Jesus, this is one of those examples where that Sunday school answer, you got it wrong, okay? Because we don't. By nature, we do not resemble Jesus, because again, what is the diagnosis? We're all what? We're all sinners. So let's talk about Nick a little more. One brother writes, he's a moral Jew, a decent man, who nonetheless falls short of regeneration. A lot of times we think we can enter God's kingdom because we're decent. We're morally upstanding. I come from a good family. I pay my taxes, right? I've always been fair, I've never cut corners, never, really. But anyway, okay, I'll give you that. But is that enough to get us entrance into God's kingdom? Say it with me in Spanish. No, No, good. So Nicodemus, he comes to Jesus on his own terms. He appears to have one foot in the world and one foot in the gospel. His knowledge of the law and his vibrant track record of keeping the law, it's not enough. It's not enough. According to Jesus, he still lacks understanding and faith and is thus outside of the kingdom. Now, last week, we saw the king's requirement and the king's diagnosis. What does the king require? Faith. What do we lack by nature? Faith. The diagnosis, our trust is untrustworthy. This week, we see, thankfully, and I I mentioned this last week, I kind of left you at a cliffhanger. Sorry for that, but not really. This week, we see the king's remedy to the problem. And what is the remedy? Again, if you recall, if you recall, recall, if you recall the king requires faith. That's too much alliteration, even for me. And yet, 
The problem remains, we are naturally faithless. We are naturally spiritually dead. And let me ask you this question. What can the dead do? Absolutely nothing. Therefore, what do we need, friends? If we're faithless by nature, and we can't believe by nature because we're spiritually dead, what do we need? Well, I have one point this morning. How does the king answer our diagnosis? Point number one, which is really our only point, the king's remedy. The king's remedy. Verses 3 to 5. Jesus answered him, Amin, Amin, which is truly, 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 truly. Why would he say it twice? I'll tell you in a minute. Because if Jesus says it, it's doubly true. No, it's, it's his authority. It's his weight, right? What I'm about to say, it carries absolute weight because he's absolute. Amen? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? What is going on here, Jesus? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? That's strange. And now Jesus is going to clarify He's not saying something different. He's clarifying. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water in the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So I want us to look at a few things here. You ready? I want us to look at what, how, and why. The what and the how and the why of the new birth or regeneration. I'm going to use those two terms, new birth and regeneration, interchangeably. But I want us to look at the what the how, and the why of the new birth. What is the new birth? How does it happen? Why is it necessary? What is it? How does it happen? Why is it necessary? I bet all of you can answer why it's necessary. What does Jesus say? You can't see, nor can you enter God's kingdom unless you're born again. That's why it's necessary. What's at stake? Our eternity. God's kingdom. So let's start with what is the new birth? <clears throat> to begin, it's, it's from God. And we see this in verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, everybody say born again. Okay, so listen, this is good. That word again, you see it in the ESV, which I typically preach from. It's the Greek word anothen, and it means, or it can mean, depending on the context, from above. So let's read it that way. And you probably have a note in your Bible, a footnote, and it'll say from above at the bottom. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, you must be born from above, meaning that the new birth has its source in heaven. It comes from God. It's God's doing. Paul affirms this, Romans 9.16 So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God. Salvation is God's doing from beginning to end. Amen? It doesn't depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Recall Jesus' words in John 6.44. No one. Everybody say no one. Okay, this is an all-encompassing statement. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And finally, recall Jesus' words in Mark 10, 24 to 27. This is after his interaction with the rich young man. Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. 
And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, it's what? It's impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God, including salvation. All right, this will be helpful. I'll put this in your notes. The new birth is something that the Lord, you're going to have three points here, three Ps, the Lord sovereignly promises, provides, and performs. I'm going to call this the three Ps of the new birth. The new birth is something that God sovereignly promises, provides, and performs. Let's start with promises. God promises the new birth in places like Ezekiel 36, 25, and 27, and also Jeremiah 31, 33. I want to look at Ezekiel 36. Will you look at this with me? Ezekiel 36, and I want you to pay attention to the subject. Who's the one doing the action? I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you, and I, I'm italicizing it with my voice, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Again, notice the subject throughout. Who is the one acting? I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. I'll remove the heart of stone. I'll put my spirit in you. It's the Lord. It is the Lord who is acting, cleansing from sin, removing a stone heart, putting in a new heart, putting in the spirit. So, A, letter A, the Father promises it. Who promises the new birth? The Father does in his word. Amen? Now listen, if the Father promises something, do you think he's going to come through? He always does because he's what? Say it with me. Faithful. Next, he provides it through his Son as seen in John three fourteen to 15 And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have what? Eternal life. So B, the Son provides it. The Father promises the new birth. The Son provides it. And lastly, he performs it. God performs it. Amen? He doesn't just promise it. He doesn't just provide it, but he performs it. We see that in John 3, 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So see, the Spirit performs it. The Father promises it. The Son provides it. The Spirit performs it. Simply put, the new birth, everybody say new birth. It's really important, by the way. Who wants to enter God's kingdom? We better know what this is, right? The new birth is something that happens internally, but has its source externally, meaning it happens inside of us, but it comes from outside of us. Again, it's God's doing, and he must do it. Can I talk about Spider-Man? Only the kids are excited. Maybe some of the adults as well. Yeah. Pastor Dave. I've always liked Spider-Man, and here's why. And this is true of a lot of superheroes, but Spider-Man wasn't born Spider-Man, okay? He wasn't born in a web. He was born a normal kid in New York City. He was sharp. But what happened to make Spider-Man 
Spider-Man, to make Peter Parker Spider-Man, something outside of him, right? He was bitten by a radioactive spider, which transformed him from the inside out. That's a clear picture of the new birth. Something has to happen outside of us, entering in us, changing us from the inside out. Are you saying we're like Spider-Man? Kind of? Kind of? Let me examine our two main verses. We have, it's called an illustration, so... We have a progression of thought in verses 3 and 5. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water in the Spirit. Now, he said something different here, but again, he's not saying something different. He's not introducing a new thought. He's what? He's clarifying. So again, if you're taking notes, I would underline born again, and maybe write in parentheses, born from above, because that's what the word means, and then connect it to born of water and the Spirit, because to be born from above is the same as being born of water and the Spirit. Jesus begins with the formulaic expression, truly, truly. What does this mean? Again, it's used to express authority, the trustworthiness of Jesus' words. And this fits well with the previous passage. We saw in John 2, 20-25, that Jesus did not entrust himself to people. Why? Because they were untrustworthy. Jesus, on the other hand, who says truly, truly, is what? Ultimately trustworthy. His words can be what? They can be trusted. They can be trusted. He speaks with what? He speaks with authority. Now, the main word that we must acknowledge in our passage, is the word unless. It's actually the combination of two Greek words, in me, but it's one English word, unless. What does the word unless convey? Jesus is saying, this cannot be true. This cannot happen unless this is true, unless this happens. If the first thing's not true, then the second thing won't happen. If one is not born from above, if one is not born of water in the Spirit, they will have no place where in God's kingdom. Now, I thought this was pretty interesting. Notice what Jesus is saying here. He's matching Nicodemus. Nicodemus said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Okay? So what does Nicodemus acknowledge? Nobody could do what you're doing, Jesus, turning water into wine and such, unless God were with him. And Jesus responds by saying, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again or from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying this. Yes, it's true. Unless God was with me, I I could not be doing the signs that I do. And unless one is born again, that person cannot enter God's kingdom. Now, that seems like a strange response. One scholar has written, the Lord answered not Nicodemus' words, but his, his thoughts, his thoughts, his heart. What did we learn last week? What does Jesus see into? What does he know? He knows what's in a man. He knows our what? He knows our, he knows our heart. He knows our need. He knows our greatest need. He speaks to Nicodemus' heart, addressing his greatest need, a need that Nicodemus himself was unaware of. You see, Nicodemus came to Jesus as a Pharisee, as a leader of the Jewish ruling council. 
He was resting in his pedigree. He was resting in his ethnicity. But Jesus saw his what? Can we fool Jesus? No. What did Jesus see? His heart. Again, everyone else would look at Nicodemus and say, there he is. That's the guy. That's the kind of guy I want to... He has his whole life together. He's a Jewish teacher. He's part of the ruling council. He's the man. And Jesus says, no. He's outside of the kingdom because I know his what? I know his heart. And what does he need? He needs a new birth. What does Nicodemus need, friends? What do we need? A new birth. Nicodemus was spiritually dead and needed to be made alive. Now, before we unpack the new birth, let's first look at what's at stake here. Jesus states that unless one is born again or from above and born of water in the Spirit, then one cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. One's entrance into God's eternal kingdom is at stake here. Is this significant? It's huge. First, what does the kingdom of God refer to? It's talked about a lot in the Bible, and not just in the New Testament. What does the kingdom of God refer to? Well, simply put, if you're looking for a simple definition, which is great, I love simple definitions. The kingdom of God refers to God's saving rule over his people. God's saving rule over his people. This referred to the climax of salvation history. This is what God's people look forward to. When they thought God's kingdom, they thought God's eternal rule in God's eternal place with God's eternal people raised from the dead. And Jesus is saying, if you want to be a part of that, if you want to enjoy that, you must be what? What? you got to be born again or born from above. So again, what does being born again, what does the new birth entail? As we've already established, to be born again or from above refers to something that God does in us. Something outside of us, entering in us, transforming us from the inside out. Can I conjure up the new birth? Can I work for it? Can I earn it? Can I do it? Can I perform it? No, what have we seen already? It's something that God promises God provides and God performs. Well, where am I in that? I'm nowhere in that, right? God does it. It's his doing. But what is it? The language from above points to the source. And the second phrase in verse 5 sheds light on the act itself. Jesus clarifies the new birth when he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water in the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Where does that language come from, water in the Spirit? It comes from the Old Testament, specifically, we've already read it, Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. Who's the overwhelming subject in that passage? Who's the one doing everything? Okay, good. listen, I am the king of awkward pauses. I'll wait 20 minutes until someone says something. But don't test me because we don't have that much time. Is he, can I read Ezekiel 36 one more time? 25, 27? Uh, now listen to the language. Again, Jesus says, unless one is born of water in the Spirit, he cannot enter God's kingdom. Okay, so water, um, I must be born of water. So to be born from above is to be born of water in the Spirit. All right, Ezekiel 36, here we go. I'll sprinkle clean water on you. What, what is that an image of? To be sprinkled with clean water. And you shall be clean 
from all your uncleannesses. What is that language used to convey? Starts with pho, ends with forgiveness. What? Forgiveness, right? And from your idols I will cleanse you. Verse 26, oh, I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you and I'll move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my rules. This passage is a reminder of what the gospel does or provides. It provides, everybody say forgiveness. It provides forgiveness as described in the language of sprinkling with clean water. And it provides transformation. Everybody say transformation. Okay, so we got forgiveness, transformation. Transformation is described using the language of a spiritual heart transplant in the giving of the spirit. Ezekiel 36 represents God's new covenant promise. This is what Jesus died to provide. That rhymed on purpose, so you don't forget it. This is what Jesus died to provide. Recall Jesus' words in Mark 14, 24 at the Lord's Supper. Mark 14, 24. And Jesus said to them, this is my blood of the covenant. What I'm doing at the cross is going to secure the new covenant promise, which is forgiveness and, what's that T word? Transformation. His blood, his death functioned to secure the promises of the new covenant. What Jesus wants us to see is that the application of his saving work is by the Holy Spirit. As we've already seen, this saving work is promised by the Lord, provided by the Lord, and performed or applied by the Lord. So to be born again, the new birth, refers to God's inner work of cleansing and renewal that is necessary for entering into God's eternal kingdom. Again, how is it applied? This we have in verses 6 to 8 of John 3. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Okay, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound. But you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So we have two analogies here. Let me unpack them quickly. Notice the first comparison that Jesus makes in verse 6. We know where babies come from, okay? We know where babies come from, but where do Christians come from? Are we born Christians? No. We're not born Christians. Children come from their parents in the act of procreation. But what about those who are born again? We aren't physically born into God's kingdom. No one can claim that. Man, I was born a Christian. No, you weren't. You were born a sinner. You were born outside the garden just like me. So we aren't born into God's kingdom. It's born into us. It's birthed into us by the Spirit. I'm getting ahead of myself. It's by the Spirit. It's the Spirit's work. In comes the second analogy in verse 8. Jesus compares the new birth to the what? Did you feel it? Maybe you smelled it. Sorry. He compares the new birth to the wind. He's arguing that just as the wind is mysterious and that you can't see it and you don't know where it comes from, but you see its effects, right? We know the wind's blowing. We feel it on our face. We see the leaves moving in the wind. 
In the same way, the new birth is mysterious. And yet, like the wind, the Spirit blows where He pleases. And you see the effects of the Spirit's work. Jesus' point is that the Spirit of God is sovereign in salvation. It's His work. He does it. It's not natural, but supernatural. Amen? It's not natural, but supernatural. Hey, what's the evidence of new birth? How do we know whether or not we've been born again? Faith. Faith. In fact, Scripture teaches that faith is the result of the new birth. Hey, what can the dead do? Say, come on. What can the dead do? Nothing. Therefore, in order for dead sinners to trust in Jesus for forgiveness and eternal life, they must first be what? Born again. Listen to 1 John 5.1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Notice the order there. It's intentional. Everyone who believes has been first what? Born of God. John emphasizes the correct order here. Those who believe are those who have been born of God, meaning being born of God precedes or comes before our faith. The Bible teaches not that we've been born again because we believed, but rather that we've been graciously born again to believe. Amen? We're not born again because we believe. We can't believe without the Spirit's help. It's true. Instead, we're graciously and mercifully and miraculously born again to believe. If you've ever driven through a town that's been devastated by a tornado, you quickly see the signs of those devastating windstorms. And maybe you weren't even there. Maybe you're just passing through the day after. But the destroyed homes and the overturned vehicles and the fallen trees are the evidence. It's true? I mean, again, you didn't have to be there. You have the evidence that what happened here. There was a tornado. There was a hurricane. There was a drastic and devastating windstorm. In the same way, when one has been blown over by the wind of God, there is evidence, and that evidence is faith. If you've been graciously blown over by the wind of God, there's what? There's faith. There's faith. Amen? What is Jesus saying here? In order to enter God's eternal kingdom, you must be cleansed and made new, and this is the Spirit's work. You must be purified and resurrected, and this is God's doing. And only those who have been transformed from the inside out by the Spirit will enter the kingdom of God. As R.C. Sproul once wrote, this is such a good quote by my man, R.C. Listen to this. If you, if you have in your heart today, right, think about your heart. Let's get introspective quickly. If you have in your heart today any affection for Christ at all, you love Jesus. It is because God the Holy Spirit in His sweetness in His power, in His mercy, and in His grace has been to the cemetery of your soul and has raised you from the dead. Amen? Oh! Has He been to the cemetery of your soul? 
I hope he has. Because if he has, what shows? What's the evidence? Faith. Faith. What are the implications of this new birth? If you've been born again, what? Man, we owe God our full praise. Amen? We owe Him everything. Why? Because we are totally dependent on Him for this. We can't conjure it up. We can't earn the new birth. It's His gracious and sovereign doing. And if He's made you born again, if He's regenerated your hard, dead heart, give Him your life. Because without Him, you would be what? Dead. Dead. And what can the dead do? Nothing. We can't do it. It's the Lord's work from beginning to end, so he gets all the glory. Remember the words of Paul in Ephesians 2, 1 to 5. And you were dead. You were dead, Paul writes, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That was all of us, our state before Christ, dead spiritually, in league with Satan. But God, oh, but God, but God what? Being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were what? Dead in our trespasses made us what? Alive. Oh, we were dead. But because he's gracious and merciful, he made us what? Alive. Together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, which means you didn't do anything. He did it all. Amen? Oh, you were dead. But if you trust in Christ now, it's because God in his marvelous grace and mercy has made you alive by the Spirit. You are dead, but God. Let me end with three application questions, and then we're going to pray. These are in your notes as well. Number one, how can one know if they've been born again? I sat down with a brother, and I know I can call him brother now on Monday, and he asked this question, how can I know? How can I know that I'm right with God? He wasn't here the previous Sunday. And so I said, hey, I asked three questions last Sunday. Diagnostic questions. How can we know if we've been born again? Do you trust in Jesus for salvation from sin and death? Hell? And do you believe that he provided this salvation through his perfect life, sacrificial death and resurrection? Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you trust in Jesus for salvation from sin and hell, which we deserve? And do you believe that Jesus alone provided this salvation through his perfect life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection? Yes. Number two, do you believe the right things about Jesus? Namely, that he's fully God, that he's fully man, that he is the promised king. And number three, are you following him and have you entrusted your life to him? What's next if you're born again? Maybe you're like, yeah, I'm born again. I know I'm born again. I trust in Jesus. I follow Jesus. What's next? (laughs) I love the story of Lydia. Philippi. She made purple clothes. Get it, girl. I've never owned anything purple. Well, I guess that's not true. Lufkin Panthers are purple. I never wear a purple suit. Anyways. 
This girl's making purple, right? Acts 16, 14 to 15, story of Lydia. The Lord opened her heart. Did she open her heart? Did she, like, watch YouTube and how do you perform spiritual heart surgery? Nobody can do that. Nobody. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So Lydia, after she was born again, she was baptized and committed to faithfully serving Christ and his church. So if you've been born again, go public with your faith through baptism and commit to serving Jesus and his church. Amen? Last question. What if you're not born again? Trust in Jesus. What if you're not born again? Trust in Jesus. What if I'm not born again? Trust in Jesus. Trust in him. Believe that he died and rose again to save sinners like you and me. Believe that you can do nothing to save yourself. That he did it all. Throw yourself at his feet and say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I need you. Forgive me. And he will. Matt Carter writes, If you're not a Christian, you won't become one by work or effort or ability or sacrifice. You can pray for God to send his spirit like the wind and blow through your dead heart and make you alive. Trust in Jesus for salvation. Christians, if you're a brother or sister in Christ, look at me. Pray. Pray for the Spirit of God to work through the gospel of God to give life to the spiritually dead. Knowing what I know now gives me so much freedom when I share the gospel. I don't feel like I have to close the deal. Meaning, it's not, you don't have to be eloquent. Who gives new birth? Do we do it? No, but what are we called to do, friends? We're called to preach the gospel wherever we go. We're called to proclaim Jesus boldly and faithfully, and then we pray for the Spirit to do the work of new birth, which only He can do. Amen? Man, knowing that I don't have to close the deal, that's the Lord's doing. I love sharing the gospel. I used to think, oh man, I I think I said ain't. They're going to think I'm ignorant. They're going to think, He doesn't know what He's saying. I ruined the whole deal. No, who cares if you said ain't? I like saying ain't sometimes. Heck shoot. Just preach the gospel and trust the Spirit to give new birth. Who's been to a different country? What did you need to get there? Passport, papers, credentials, right? Jesus' point in our passage is to say this. In order to enter God's kingdom, in order to enter heaven, you must have your credentials. Do we have them? What are they? What are our credentials? For, what does the Lord require of us? What must be true of us if we're going to enter into God's kingdom? You must be born again. You must be born again. You must be born again. And as we've learned, this is not something that we can do or earn, but rather it is the Lord's sovereign and merciful doing. What we saw last week is that faith is not something that we can conjure up. The Lord knows our hearts, and they are naturally wicked and opposed to God. That was the diagnosis. The remedy? What's the remedy? The new birth. If you've been born again, praise God. Praise God. Amen? You were dead, but now you're alive. Rest 
in the gospel and proclaim that gospel to others. Praise God for the Spirit's work of making dead sinners alive to trust in Jesus and enter God's eternal kingdom. Are you thankful? Man, what a great passage. Let's pray. Father, it is so sweet to be reminded that the new birth is not something that we deserve or earn. We can't work at it. We're not born with it. It is your doing, the doing of our good and merciful and sovereign and holy God. For those who have received the new birth, we say thank you. But Father, I know all of us know people family members, friends, co-workers, classmates, neighbors that have not been born again, give us boldness to proclaim to them the gospel. Remind us of what Paul said in Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation for all who believe. Father, may we be armed with that powerful message, proclaiming your gospel and praying for your spirit to give new life to those who are spiritually dead, so that they can behold Jesus and believe in him and follow him. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said.